Well, today we'll get started with the 19th Psalm, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day, the breezy day we have here, and uh, just thank you for the people that have been able to make it here, and uh, we know that there are uh, some people that are sick today that are in really bad shape, and we would pray for them. Kelly, who is such a faithful attendee, is uh, uh, not feeling well. We have uh, people that are traveling. I would pray that you would uh, be with them and help them uh, uh, to come home safely. And uh, Lord, I would just pray that this service would be a time of uh, reflection for each one of us to understand that your word is so pure and so wonderful. And every word of it is leading us to an understanding of something glorious, something beautiful, leading us to an understanding of your son. Help us to keep that in focus, not just as we look at it today, but each time we read the Bible, that you're trying to wake us up to the mystery and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and go straight into the 20th Psalm, and then uh, we'll get started into the sermon today. Psalm number 20. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand up. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Thank you, David, for the wonderful words that you give us out of the Psalms. Um, today is uh, 22 September, and uh, just so you know, it's real hot where I'm sitting right now. And uh, so if you see me sweating, just kind of ignore that. I'm fine, but uh, it's, it's really hot, and I'm glad you have shade over there. But uh, we're going to go ahead and do this day in history, just a few points to go through, and uh, then we'll get into the sermon, which is Genesis 35, verses 16 through 27. It's entitled, The Circle of Life. Um, on this day in uh, 
of 22 September in 1789, the U.S. Congress authorized the office of Postmaster General. And uh, normally I wouldn't include something like that, but I just thought it's interesting that uh, just this past week, the uh, post office announced that it has for next month only five days of money to pay its employees and to stay solvent. And uh, if uh, they don't get an emergency rate increase, then, of course, they're going to have real trouble and they're going to have to just shut down operations. Um, the uh, the uh, post office is something that is supposed to pay for itself. If it cannot provide for its own money, then it is, uh, uh, it's not funded by the government, in other words. And so it's kind of uh, odd that just on this day in history we have this occurring. And then in 1792, the uh, French Republic was proclaimed. We know that it used to be a monarchy. Uh, uh, like England still is, and eventually they got rid of their king, and they said, we're going to do it on our own. And uh, so that was 1792 that the French Republic was proclaimed. And then on this day in 1862, U.S. President Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It stated that all slaves held within rebel states would be free as of January 1st of 1863. And uh, I would love to see our current president, who thinks he's a, a model of Lincoln, uh, announce a proclamation of freedom for the unborn. But uh, so far that hasn't happened, and I doubt if the uh, Democrat Party of the United States of America will ever come to that uh, without first receiving God's severe hand of judgment, which will include all of us. So uh, anyway, there you go. 1903 on this day, a guy named Italo Marchione. Does anybody know what Italo Marchione uh, patented? He patented the ice cream cone. So I want to thank uh, Italo for his uh, uh, daring adventure into industry and uh, innovation. Got us the ice cream cone, and many children since then have enjoyed uh, what he gave us. Uh, very sad news. On this day in 1914, there were three British cruisers that were sunk by one German submarine in the North Sea. And uh, at that time, 1,400 British sailors were killed. So imagine that. All 1,400 of them probably had no idea what was coming, and uh, they probably didn't even know that they were under fire until it was over. I don't know the story of this, but uh, uh, we don't know our last moment. We simply do not have an idea when we're going to die, and uh, we need to be prepared with the good news of Jesus Christ now. And uh, that's a perfect lesson for us right there. But anyway, this event alerted the British to the effectiveness of the submarine. And uh, since then, it's been a real uh, weapon of war. It's uh, developed into uh, something that can destroy entire continents, uh, these uh, nuclear ballistic submarines. But uh, uh, that was uh, 1914. And then in uh, 1949, the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb successfully. So the uh, nuclear age had uh, dawned with uh, the uh, Manhattan Project and the bomb known as Trinity. But after that came the uh, Soviet Union entered the... Uh, the uh, atomic age, and uh, since then we've had quite a few other countries that have uh, joined, and uh, Iran is, unless uh, Israel does something, our weak president is doing nothing about Iran, so it looks like uh, we may be in real trouble, but uh, Israel will hopefully do something about uh, Iran, and they won't join this uh, exclusive club, because if they do, there's going to be even greater trouble in the world. Um, in uh, 1955 on this day, commercial television began in Great Britain. And uh, what I thought was interesting was the rules that they laid out. The rules said that only six minutes of ads were allowed each hour, something we could all use, and there was no Sunday morning TV permitted. So at the time, they had a sense of, uh, you know, we want people in church and not watching TV, but uh, that's uh, obviously changed the, the world over. 
but uh, that was their original uh, mandate for uh, British TV. And then in 1961, U.S. President John F. Kennedy signed a congressional act that enacted the Peace Corps. So, uh, you know, I don't know much about the Peace Corps. I'm sure it's probably, uh, being a government-funded thing, it's probably pretty horrifying. But uh, I think that over the years they have done good things as well. I think it would be better if those things stayed in the uh, private sector. But uh, anyway, that's, like I say, I don't know anything about the Peace Corps. And if you do, and if you've been a member and you disagree with me, send me an email and let me know. But, um, you know, I just know how when the government gets into things, it always turns out bad. Um, 1966, on this day, the U.S. Lunar Probe Surveyor 2 crashed into the moon. And uh, so a little uh, setback in the, uh, uh, you know, NASA's uh, space exploration there. But uh, then the, finally on 1988, Canada's government, this is something I didn't even know occurred, Canada's government apologized for the internment of Japanese Canadians during World War II. I knew that America had been involved in that. I did not know that Canada had been involved in the internment of, uh, of uh, their Japanese citizens. But later, they also promised compensation to those people. But my thought is, how do you compensate somebody like that? You've taken away their life. You've taken away their time and their... Uh, uh, you know, just their uh, homes, and uh, it's just a part of life you can't get back. I mean, I'm glad they did compensate them, but it's just something I had no idea about. Um, anyway, that's this day in history, 22 September, and uh, we'll go ahead and read our uh, verses from the Bible today, and uh, then we'll get right into our sermon, and uh, I'll try to finish up quickly because, yes, it is hot. I know you're not, but boy, over here, it sure is. Um, this is Genesis 35, verses 16 through 27, and I would hope that uh, especially the first six verses, that you would try to pay attention and try to think, what is God telling me and why did he include all of this detail? Um, I actually preached on uh, these, uh, a portion of these verses in a different sermon years ago back in Grace Baptist Church, and I already knew some of the pictures that were in there, but I was surprised when I prepared for this sermon and actually got into uh, studying the Hebrew and uh, the, the patterns in the Bible, how detailed this particular set of verses, these six verses in particular, point to Jesus Christ. But we're going to finish out the entire chapter, and uh, all of it does point to Christ. But these first six verses are pretty amazing. Um, this is uh, Genesis 35, starting at the 16th verse. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear. You will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, uh, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The verses for our sermon today include both joy at new life and the sadness of the death of a still young woman and wife. 
They also include the death of one of the patriarchs after a long and full life. Now, these details are no different in and of themselves than those of billions of people who have lived since this time. And yet, God has chosen these specific details because they provide us with moral lessons and helpful insights into the establishment of his covenant people. But more than this, they provide pictures of what is ahead, of the marvel of his entrance into the stream of humanity in order to redeem us from our fallen state. The Bible demonstrates such wisdom and that it could only have come from the hand of the Creator who is outside of time and sees the end from the beginning. So let's explore today's passage and see the intricacy of what these verses are telling us. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Matthew chapter 2. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel died in giving birth, and yet 1,700 years after her death, she is said to mourn for her children, as if rising from the grave to weep for them. The Bible is a collection of stories which share the details of the lives of many people. They are brought to remembrance even after their deaths, as if they were alive, because to God they are alive. The Bible teaches that the soul of man is eternal, and it will spend its eternity in one of only two places. And as incredible as it may seem, God allows us the choice of choosing our destiny. Let's make sure we choose wisely. It is the Word, the Holy Bible, which shows us the right path we need to take. And so, may God speak to us through His Word today. And may His glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first one is one son, two names. This is verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. Now, as occurs throughout the book of Genesis, we come across stories which are interesting. They might be a little sad or maybe a bit uncomfortable, but they are stories which in and of themselves don't really teach us anything other than a bit of history. We may wonder why these details are mentioned at all, but there is always a purpose. This story about Rachel has the immediate purpose of telling us about the birth of the 12th son of Israel, Benjamin. But the details about Rachel are seemingly otherwise unnecessary unless they're showing us a picture of something else. No mention of Rebekah's death is given, and of all the sons of Israel, only Joseph's death has any details recorded at all. So why Rachel, and why the details? These are questions that we need to ask as we read the Bible. Never, never stop asking questions as you read the Bible. All right. Now I want to read you this verse again, and I want to break it down into seven things that I was specifically looking for when I uh, uh, started evaluating it. All right. This is verse 16. Then they journeyed. Okay. So I'm going to look at why is a journey being mentioned from Bethel? Why the name of Bethel? And when there was but a little distance. All right. Why does it specifically mention a little distance to go to Ephrath? Well, why Ephrath? Why does it mention that? Rachel mentions her name again specifically. Why? And then it says she labored in childbirth. Okay. Why is it telling us that? And then it says, and she had hard labor. That's telling us something that we need to pay attention to. So why is Bethel mentioned? Bethel means house of God. They're on a journey from one place to another. They're headed to where Isaac is. Jacob is now going to assume his role as the patriarch of the family and his authority over Isaac's camp. On the way there, it says that Rachel has labor 
and she gives birth. This verse says that it is on the way to Ephrath. Now, why is Ephrath mentioned? Ephrath means fruitful. Rachel is mentioned. Why by name? Her name means you lamb. It's a female lamb. She is in labor and she has hard labor. Who is it that, di that directs the womb of the human being? Well, of course, we know it's God. He's in charge of all things and he is directing these things for his purposes. In the case of Rachel, he's directing this to show us other things. He's using her life, even her childbirth and her death for our learning. Now, before we go on, we want to go back to Genesis 30, verse 1, and I want to read you what it said there. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Now, Rachel said, I want to have children or I want to die. And she had a son before, Joseph, and she lived. But now another child is coming, meaning plural, children, and the consequences of her words are coming true. She will have children and she will die. Now, this is not meant to say that every idle word that we say will come about as we say them. In other words, I could say, well, I claim healing in Jesus' name, and if it doesn't come about, it's because God did not want healing for that particular person. So every idle word that we say may not come about as we say it, but it is meant to show us that God does, in fact, remember every idle word that we speak. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 12. He says, but I say that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And I gotta tell you what, this morning I got angry at one of my puppies, and I, I thought if I had a video camera behind me, and I saw myself yelling at poor little Zacchaeus, I think, you know, that guy's a jerk yelling at a little dog. You know, but you get upset and you, you say, get out of here, leave me alone. Every single thing that we're doing is being recorded in God's mind. He already knows it, and it's going to be held against us or for us on the day of judgment. And so we need to salt our, our speech, and we need to speak rightfully to other people, and we need to have a good attitude in our heart towards the things that we are doing. This is just, it, it's an obvious conclusion that we can make from this verse. But if for no other reason than knowing that our words are recorded, we need to be careful about how we speak. It's quite possible that, like Rachel, he may actually hold us to account in our words. Now, I got a little squiggle for your brain like I do every week. The word translated as a little distance in the Hebrew, it's the word kivrat. And it's only used three times in the entire Bible. Twice in this account right here and one in 2 Kings chapter 5. And nobody's actually sure what it means. And the meaning that they can infer from it is something that's actually the opposite of what you infer from the text. And so it's kind of a word that perplexes scholars. So if you like that, just remember the word kivrat is a kind of confusing to scholars. Uh, verse 17, now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. Now from the previous verse, we know that Rachel's labor was hard. From the words of the midwife, we can be certain that Rachel was in real anguish and she probably knew that she might die. The midwife sees that the baby is finally coming and so she says, do not fear. And then she adds the good news, you will have this son also. The child will be a boy and he will live. Deborah, Rebecca's wet nurse, has died, and so this is the very first recorded child in two generations to be born and raised without her. Verse 18, and so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Here in verse 18 of chapter, of chapter 35 of the book of Genesis, we have a true indication of the eternality of the human soul. 
In Hebrew, it says, beset And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died. This verse shows us that the body and the soul are in fact separate entities. If it was merely her breath, a different word, ruach, would have been used. The New T Testament teaches us this as well. In the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul shows us that a soul without a body is naked. Jesus in his parables uh, tells us this as well. The two, the body and the soul, are joined during life, but the soul continues on in death in an unintended state. God, who is directing both the means and the timing of Rachel's death, allows her to live long enough after the child's birth to give him a name. And she, so she names him Ben-Oni, which in Hebrew means son of my suffering. And God, who knew that this name would be unsuitable to Jacob, shows us that he changed the name from one of grief and suffering to the bond of absolute closeness. And so Jacob, re Jacob renames him Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand, verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Once again, the very rare occurrence of the death and the burial of a woman in the Bible is noted. Not only is her name given, but a general location as well. It is on the way to Ephrath. And then as an explanation of the name, the Bible adds, that is Bethlehem. This was necessary to avoid confusing this Ephrath with any other Ephrath that's in the land of Israel. And it's also the same with Bethlehem because there are more than one Bethlehem in the land of Israel. And so to make sure that we know that it is this particular Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, God tells us specifically, Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, verse 20. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Just six verses earlier in our last sermon in uh, verse 14, Jacob had set up a pillar in honor of his meeting with God at Bethel. It was a time of joy and of fellowship with God. Now in verse 20, he erects a pillar in a time of sadness and in hope of God. The pillar has since been a monument of faith in the resurrection of the dead. Jacob anticipates this during his time of sadness. The pillar's location was still known at the time of Moses when he recorded these first five books, uh, which included the book of Genesis, and it was still known even 400 years after that at the time of Samuel, as is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Verse 21, then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. This is the very first time in the Bible that the name Israel is applied to Jacob the person. In just the last verse, it said that Jacob set up a pillar on Rachel's grave. But now Israel is formally introduced with the name that he was given by God. And I would suggest two reasons for this. The first is that Benjamin was just born, thereby completing the family who is known by his name, Israel. And the second is because of who and what he's picturing in this verse. Now let's shed some light on why this detail is recorded and what we've looked at so far. The journey of these six verses began in Bethel, which is the house of God. As before, this represents heaven, where God dwells. A journey is made from there towards Mamre, which is also called Kiriath Arba, and it's also called Hebron, three names being given. Mamre means bitter or strong, the idea of bitterness being a strong taste or experience. Kiriath Arba means the city of the four. Mamre represents the bitter fallen world which Jesus is going to to reclaim. Kiriath Arba also represents the earth, the number four consistently denoting the earth in the pages of the Bible. 
There are, for example, four corners of the Earth noted, east, south, north, and west. And then you have the four elements, earth, wind, air, and fire. And then, of course, you have the four seasons, spring, summer, winter, and autumn. So the number four is denoting the earth throughout the Bible. The place is also called, though, Hebron. This means conjunction or joining. And it's telling us what Christ will do when he, in fact, does arrive for both Jew and Gentile. There will be a joining of the two into one, something which Paul explains in detail in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. In order for Jesus to reclaim the earth, he must participate in it. And so he leaves Bethel, the house of God or heaven, in John chapter 3, we see this mission mentioned specifically by Jesus. He said there, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And then Jesus came from heaven, which is Bethel, and he was born in Bethlehem Ephrata, as is recorded in both testaments of the Bible. In Micah, his coming was prophesied. It said there in Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. In Matthew, his coming is realized. When Herod the king asked where the Messiah would be born, they went right back to that verse in Micah chapter 5, and they said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, Beit Lechem. This house pictures, once again, Jesus. In John 6:48, he said, I am the bread of life. Later in the same chapter, he was even more clear when he explained himself. He said, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna, which, who are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. He is heaven's bread, having come from the house of God, Bethel, to the house of bread, Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is given another name. It's Ephrat, that means fruitful. And this pictures, yes, Jesus and his work in the saving of men. He explains it in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It is Rachel who bears the son. Well, what does Rachel mean? You lamb. The child of a lamb is a lamb. This is fulfilled in John the Baptist's proclamation, which he made in John 1, 29. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John prophesied concerning Jesus' work. It would be of one of substitutionary death. In other words, his life would be a sacrifice, and that's why he said he takes away the sin of the world. He would be, according to John, as written in the Greek, amnos, which means not just a lamb, but a sacrificial lamb. It is the same word which is speaking of the coming Christ in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. There it says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep, an omnas, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. However, the same word for lamb right here in the original Hebrew is the word Rachel, or Rachel. Rachel's death is recorded here to show us that the Messiah will also die as a sacrificial lamb. 
This is confirmed by John the Baptist's words, which I just said to you from the New Testament. Her death and the birth of Benjamin produces a dual picture. From the death of the lamb, Rachel, comes the birth of the son, Benjamin. But also from the death of the lamb, Jesus, comes the birth of the son, which is each one of us. Thus it pictures life from death, the resurrection. Next it says that Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. This is the expectancy of the completed work of the Messiah, which Paul writes about in Romans 8. He says, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs even until now. And as she lay dying, the maidservant tending to the mother spoke these words, do not be afraid. It is the same words that were spoken by Gabriel the angel to Mary at the announcement of the coming Redeemer. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Next, the story tells us that as she was dying, she called her son's name Ben-Oni, son of my suffering. This is a picture, yes, of Jesus, the son of man and the son of God, the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah and is noted as fulfilled in Hebrews 5, verse 8. It says there, though he was a son, yet he, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so it says that Rachel died, repeating the fact again. Rachel pictures, as we've seen in all of the previous sermons, the age of grace. She pictures those who have come to Christ through his cross of suffering. And Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. After Rachel's death, it says his father calls him Benjamin. It leaves the name of the father out. It doesn't say Jacob called him, it says his father, so that we now have a clear picture of the father of the son, God the father. Because of the suffering and death, the son is exalted to be called Benjamin, son of the right hand. Of course, this is Jesus after his resurrection, as he's noted time and time and time again in the New Testament. For example, in Mark 16, it says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And to get a clearer picture of this, we can remember what happened at Bethel when Jacob was first there. He saw a ladder stretching from heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And this ladder is picturing the journey from Bethel, the house of God, down to Bethlehem. It's Jesus' heavenly home for his earthly home. John, or Jesus himself says this in uh, uh, John chapter one. He says, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So we have this picture complete. He is the ladder, the pillar which was set up on Rachel's grave is the promise of eternal life for those in Christ, those who have received his offer of grace, which is pictured by Rachel. The pillar is the hope of Christ and our promise of that resurrection. After erecting it, we read that Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair. As I said, this is the very first time in the Bible that the name Israel is applied to the person Jacob in the Bible. And I said that one of the reasons is because of who and what he pictures in this verse. He's been picturing Jesus all along, and now he's traveling from heaven to earth. As it says, he journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair. 
To pitch one's tent, as we've seen in several sermons in the past, means to come and to reside. Jesus is said to have pitched his tent by coming to earth because he put on a tent of flesh. It's to reside or temporary dwell in a, a garment of flesh. Jacob pictures Jesus who pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair. In Hebrew, the word is Migdal Adair. This means the Tower of the Flock. It is the same term which is used to describe where the Messiah would be hailed in Micah chapter 4, verse 8. There it says, And you, O Tower of the Flock, Migdal Adair, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. This tower of the flock would have been the place where the shepherds were first told of the coming of the Lord, as is noted in Luke chapter 2. It said, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. So I, I, I would just think what it would have been like to be one of those shepherds on that cold autumn night and to see the sky lit up with the glory of the Lord shining around them in heavenly splendor. There at Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock, every single word that we've looked at in those six voices, verses, every single one of them has been pointing to Jesus. Simply astonishing stuff. Our second thought today, the sons of Israel. Verse 22, and it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bil Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. I want you to know it is so hugely hot out here and I'm really dry and parched, and so I know my words are coming out a little sputtering. No, no, I don't want anything to drink, please. And I'm sorry I'm sweating all over, and I'm saying this not particularly for you guys, but more for the people that watch this on YouTube. It's just really hot, but with the wind, we had to sit here today. Anyway, we'll go on to verse 22. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Although this verse is intriguing, and it gives us ample opportunity for life applications of what not to do, there is a straightforward reason why it's included and why it's included right here. We have just seen the work of the Messiah recorded. In the same verse, without any pause in the verse, it begins to list the 12 sons of Israel. In the English, it's all one verse. Although all 12 sons are inheritors of the land blessing, and though Joseph will be given the birthright, only one son can have the preeminence leading to the Messiah. We've already seen that the second and third sons, who are Simeon and Levi, will be excluded. They killed with malice an entire town of people. But up until this point, the first son, Reuben, has not yet been excluded. However, that would not allow for God's plans to happen in the way that would correctly lead to Jesus. And so in a moment of human weakness, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, where man fell through the devil's use of a woman, Reuben also falls through a bad decision concerning Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, who is Rachel's maid. Now, as I'm sure you remember from the Genesis 29 sermon, I know everybody remembers this, Bilhah means foolish. The only New Testament reference that we can connect with her name comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? The name Belial is connected to the name Bilhah. It means beyond purpose. It's something that's useless. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the exact same group of people. He highlights 
an identical situation which had occurred there. He says these words, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. The sin of sexual immorality caused Reuben to lose the right to be the bearer of the Messiah. And instead as a tribe, he faded into obscurity. And the same sin caused a member of the church in Corinth to be excommunicated for his actions. Such is the nature of temptation which leads to fornication. And so, I wanna show you the transfer of the Messianic blessing from Reuben, Simeon, and Levi down to Judah. And in order to do that, I wanna take a moment and read you Israel's blessings upon these sons before his death. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, this account right here, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly for in their anger they slew a man and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. So you can see they're out. They don't get the messianic blessing. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And in fact, that happened. They were both divided in Israel. They were divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel as tribes. And then he goes on to his fourth son, Judah. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. He makes a pun on Judah's name, which means praise. He says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. Now speaking of the lion, he's speaking of the constellation Leo, all right? He says, the scepter, which is Regulus the star, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And that alignment happened at the time of Jesus' birth. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed in garments, his garments in wine. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So you can see that this messianic blessing has been transferred. Verse 22 continues. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. Right here, we're in the middle of this same verse where Reuben is demonstrated to be unworthy of the messianic blessing. And there is in the Hebrew text, a pause. It ends what is called a parasha or a portion. And there's a ton of speculation by scholars Jewish and Christian alike, why the division appears right here. And what I did is I printed it off so you can see what a parashat is. And you have to question yourself, why would God include that pause right there, that particular point in the story? None of the scholars that I read, none of them came to the reason that I think is right. Why would a pause come after Jacob hearing about Reuben and what he did and before saying, now the sons of Jacob are 12? The reason is because the line to the Messiah was decided right here in this verse. That's the obvious conclusion. Before naming the sons of Israel, the decision has been made so that when their names are read, we're gonna be able to determine where the Messiah that has been pictured dozens of times in these verses already will come from. And so the list is now given. Verse 23, the sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. 
The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. The order of the sons is given not by birth, but by mother and then by birth. Leah is mentioned first. And why is that? Because as we've seen through all of our sermons, she pictures the law. And so her sons are given. Christ will come from under the law. And from her sons, the first three have been excluded. Therefore, we can see that Judah will be the one to bear the messianic line. Then the sons of Rachel, who pictures grace, are named. And then the two maidservants are listed with their sons. Rachel's maid first, and then Leah's. But two more questions arise. Why are the sons listed at all? And why are they listed right here? The answer is that all of the sons of Israel are now born with the coming of Benjamin. In this chapter, we see the renaming of Jacob to Israel for the second time. The first time he was renamed on the night he wrestled with the man by the, uh, over in Mahanaim by the river. And the name and blessing of Israel applied to Jacob the man. In this chapter, we saw last week that the name and blessing of Israel applies to Jacob the people. Unlike Isaac and Jacob, who alone held the blessing, Israel is now a collective group of people, and they all share in the covenant blessings. And the reason for the naming of them right here is because of what we will see in our next, which is our final thought of the day, the death of Isaac, verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Jacob now comes to the home of his father because he will assume the role as the leader of the clan, which has gone from Abraham through Isaac. The sons of Israel were listed by name to indicate that all of them will participate in the inheritance of the clan, not just one of them. They will be a united group of people. Hebron is the third major place of note that Abraham went and took up residence in, and it's where both he and his wife Sarah died and where they were buried. Isaac has resided in this location all along. He's blind and he's been waiting for his time to end. When Jacob left there many long years earlier, he left with his staff and the blessing of his father. And I want to read you that blessing, and there's a reason why I'm reading it. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give to you the blessings of Abraham, to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. That blessing is fulfilled in its entirety. God Almighty, El Shaddai, has blessed him. He has become fruitful and multiplied. He has become an assembly of people. He has received the blessing of Abraham, and he and his descendants are now the inheritors of the land in which he's a stranger and which God gave to Abraham. That will be fulfilled actually after the Exodus, but he's the one to receive that. So that blessing was fulfilled, and that's why it's showing this now that Isaac's being reintroduced. This is the second reason for the listing of the sons of Israel in this place and at this time. The word of God is very, very precise in how it's detailed and why it is in the order that it follows. It is an amazing, an amazing record of the wisdom of God in his unfolding plan of redemption. Every part of this blessing given by Isaac was fulfilled literally and completely. The names of the sons are given before Jacob's meeting with Isaac to show us this. But guess what? Isaac isn't gonna die for another 12 years after Jacob moves back to Haran to be with them. It's a very compl complicated calculation. I'm not gonna bother you with today, but 
we can tell that Isaac is still going to be alive when Joseph is sold off uh, by his brothers and he goes down to Egypt. And then he is still going to be alive until almost 10 years before Jacob himself moves down to Egypt. All right. And the answer why this is here the way it is is to be found in the next verses. Verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac outlived his father Abraham by five years, but he was blind for many of them, over 40 years. Thus the quantity of Isaac's years was exceeded by the quality of Abraham's years. The year of Isaac's birth was the year 2109 from the creation of the world, or Anno Mundi, and the year of Isaac's death was the year 2289 Anno Mundi. However, during the 12 years from Jacob's arrival until Isaac's death, nothing is mentioned. Nothing about Isaac is mentioned at all. Understanding this makes what the Bible does record much more important to know. God is not giving a detailed recording of the lives of these people. He's recording details of the lives of these people. And the reason is because he is trying to wake us up and to search out his son Jesus in the details. Verse 29, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of years. The last time that Isaac was mentioned directly in the pages of the Bible, as I said, was 40 years earlier. In those years, nothing of his life is recorded. God gave him life and used that life, including his prolonged blindness, to tell us about himself. One might say, well, that isn't fair. God allowed him to be blind just to show us pictures of Jesus. But God is the potter, and we are the clay. How he uses us is up to him. And Paul specifically notes this in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8, he says these words, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? When we read and we understand the details of these stories, we find the sovereignty of God, but we also find his great grace. Why else would he show us these things, all telling about Jesus, unless he wanted us to focus on Jesus? And why would he send Jesus to die unless he wanted us to receive that offering? The complexity of this book is a demonstration of the love of God for every one of us. Every person recorded in there is an attempt to get us to wake up and to see that God has done all of this, all of it, for us. How can we turn our back on such a gift as that? How can we not accept it when we see a man such as Isaac used so that we are the recipient of the vision that he lacked? Verse 29 continues, and his son Esau and Jacob buried him. This chapter ends right here with this final thought. The struggle between two boys that began in their mother's womb and which was a source of grief to their parents is now behind them. Together, they lay their father to rest in the dust from which he came. Esau, as we've seen in every sermon about Esau, pictures fallen man, and Jacob pictures the risen Christ. Together, they bury the enmity between each other and they bury the man whose name means laughter, both rejoicing at a life well lived and in the hope of the resurrection of the righteous, among whom their father is counted. A final thought on this is that when we too are resurrected because of the merits of Jesus Christ, laughter will be there with us. If you've never received 
the joy, and I mean the absolute joy of the salvation of the Lord. And if you've never had a moment in your life where you can definitively say, I belong to Jesus Christ, please give me just one more minute to explain to you and to your heart how you can receive him and how you can share in his great joy. The Bible says that we were created. I do not believe in evolution. In fact, I don't believe an evolutionist has properly thought through the fact because the Bible says there is original sin and Jesus came to undo original sin and you can't evolve into original sin. We are created by God and our first father, Adam, sinned. And since that time, sin has been in the stream of humanity. Every human being inherits his father's sin. That's the picture of circumcision. It's a picture of cutting away the sin nature. The sin travels through the father, but it does not travel through the mother. But every person born on earth is born of a father and a mother, including Mary. So what did God do? He promised all the way back in Genesis chapter three that the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent. And so he came into a woman. So the father is God, he doesn't have sin, and the mother is a vessel for the child to be born. So. He is without sin. He's born without sin. So now he is qualified to replace Adam who sinned. He can break the chain of sin in humanity. It doesn't mean he did it though. He has to now fulfill the law under which he was born. And so the gospel record gives the detail of Jesus Christ's life saying he lived faithfully under this law without ever sinning. And then he gave his life up, this perfect sinless life at birth, sinless life through the law. He gave it up as a, a substitute for our sins and he asks us to do one simple thing exercise our faith that what he did is sufficient to reconcile us to God the Father the Bible says that the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ and he says if you simply call on the name of the Lord you will be saved so if you've never done that if you've never taken the time to simply call out to Jesus I want what you have done I want to be free from the stain of Adam God will do that He'll honor your request and he will grant you eternal life, streets of glory for all eternity by a simple and mere act of faith. Here's our closing verse for today. It's Hebrews 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. The whole Bible is about faith, exercising our faith in the provision of God. All right, next week is we're gonna start a two-sermon uh, two uh, excursion into Genesis 36, and I wanna note this in advance that there are millions of names in Genesis 36. It is the generations of Esau. There's very little that we can apply to our life in there, but there is stuff that we can learn that's very interesting. So it is a part of God's word, and we need to treat it as such, and we need to handle it appropriately. And so we're gonna go through those uh, uh, verses of Genesis chapter 36 in detail, but I'm not gonna give you the meaning of every single name. We'd be here for years doing that, but every name is in there for a reason. I'll assure you of that. Now, I have a poem for you, and then we're gonna take communion, but before I do that, I wanna go ahead and tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, all right? Our poem today is called The Circle of Life. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go, to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth as well, and she had hard labor and a painful throw. Now it came to pass and did appear, when she was in hard labor, a painful throw, that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son, yes, this one also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin, he is the one at his right side. 
So Rachel died her life they couldn't save. Near to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, she was buried on the way. And Jacob set a pillar there on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair is where he went. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and with Bilhah lay. His father's concubine, this was out of hand, and Israel heard about it, bringing him dismay. Now the sons of Jacob, 12 they were. The sons of Leah were Reuben, born to Jacob first. And Simeon, Levi, Judah, these through her. Also Issachar and Zebulun, by Leah they were nursed. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. Surely these two boys made Jacob grin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were two, Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. That rounds out the 12, you see. These were the sons of Jacob, a very fruitful man. They were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. He would now settle in and not move on. Now 180 years was Isaac's days, so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. His son Esau and Jacob buried him. It was by Rebekah's side. There is a time for all of us when our life will end, a time when we will be buried in the grave. How will each of us our short lives spend? Will we trust in Jesus or continue to misbehave? God has done all the work to reconcile us. All that is needed is to call out and receive Jesus. When we do, the deal is done once for all time. Eternal life is offered to each, so don't let a moment pass. And at our end, we will receive the reward sublime. Together we can walk on streets of gold as clear as glass. Accept the pardon, the offering of grace, and for eternal days behold the splendor, the majestic splendor of God's beautiful face. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for getting me through this sermon. I, my bandana is absolutely soaking wet, and I thank you that you kept me up and going just for this time. I uh, want to praise you for the wonder, wonder that is found in your word, and I hope that each person here has heard something that will help them to want to search out your son more and more each and every time they pick up the Bible and read. Lord, we thank you for the prospect of a week ahead with uh, many blessings. I ask that you bless each person here and their table. Bless them in their fellowship and in their families. Bless them so that they can turn around and sing praises to you and to glorify you, the great God of heaven. We love you and we do praise you. And we do so in the name of our exalted and majestic Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.